worshiping. We have come into this house to magnify the Lord and worship Him. Hallelujah. We have come into this house to magnify the Lord and worship Christ our Lord. Worship Him, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's forget about ourselves and concentrate on Him and worship Him. Let's forget about ourselves and concentrate on Him and worship Him. Let's forget about ourselves and concentrate on Him and worship Christ our Lord. Worship Him, Jesus Christ our Lord. For He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is lord every knee shall bow every tongue confess that jesus christ Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Don't you love him this morning? Glory be to Jesus. I want you to take just a moment or two here and shake hands with some folks around you, especially our visitors here today. We seem to have a, a lot of visitors, and we're glad to have all of you. So just get acquainted there. Ask people what their name is and where they're from, and, and praise God. Let's just uh, have a little fellowship here. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Be. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul, something happened, and now I know he touched me, and he made me whole. Sing it again. Go on. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. For something really happened. And now I know he touched me and he made me whole. Let's just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
let's just lift our hands toward heaven and praise the Lord. Let's just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hands toward heaven and praise the Lord. Sing it again. Let's just praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hands toward heaven and praise the Lord. Let's just praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hands toward heaven and praise the Lord. Yes. It's a pleasure to be here, and I am glad that these days my wife usually travels with me when I go. It used to be years back when I was first in a traveling teaching ministry, and our children were still small. Most of the time, she had to stay home and look after the children. Now our children are grown, and it's a real joy that she's able to be with me. Alice, would you stand? She's right back there toward the back, and we're awfully glad she could come. 
It's a joy for us to be with you here in Houston and to have fellowship with uh, the Curleys, whom we've known for several years. And uh, I want to make mention of the uh, New Wine magazine. There, we brought some books and tapes along that are out there on the uh, book table and also copies of the magazine. This is the latest issue, which is our combined July-August issue. The theme of it's on the, the media and how they shape our society. The magazines are free. We hope you will take one as long as they last. And uh, we trust it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, we believe it's the finest charismatic teaching magazine available in America today. The fact that I'm the editor of it has nothing whatever to do with my opinion. But uh, we are grateful for the ministry that God has given it. it. We have a circulation of somewhere around 80,000, 80 to 90,000. It goes into over 100 foreign countries. We estimate approximately a quarter of a million people read it each month. And it has been a blessing to lots of folks, and we're grateful, I'm grateful to have a part in it. So we trust that it'll be a blessing to you, and there's, we'd like for you to subscribe to it. There's no subscription price. There's an envelope inside the magazine. If you'd like to be on our mailing list, all you have to do is to uh, fill it out and send it over to our uh, editorial offices in Mobile, and uh, everything will get cranked up, and eventually your name will be added to the list, and pretty soon you'll start getting the magazine. Now, of course, if we don't hear from you in a few months in the way of a letter or a uh, purchase a book or a contribution, then we'll send you a little notice asking if you really like the magazine and uh, because it is supported by free will contributions. But we send it to lots of people, folks in prison, retired people, missionaries, and people overseas who cannot afford it. So the contributions that other people give make it possible for us to do that. But we trust the magazine will be a blessing to you. I'm going to be speaking in these uh, five sessions on a, I don't know exactly what to call it, other than say that maybe it's a series on relationships. The first two sessions, to today and tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about our vertical relationship to the Lord in terms, first of all, of what our inheritance is in Christ in terms of receiving His power and His blessings. That's this morning. And the title of my message this morning is The Christian Life, Natural and Supernatural. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be talking about our relationship to God in a more uh, solemn uh, vein in terms of our relationship to Him, in terms of our obedience, what's required of us in terms of our obedience to Him. Then the last three sessions, we're going to be talking about our relationships to one another as Christians. You know, the cross, which is the uh, basic emblem of our Christian faith, is comprised of two members, a vertical and a horizontal. The vertical, I think, represents our relationship to the Lord. The horizontal represents our relationships to one another as Christian brothers and sisters and members of the family of God. And uh, we live in a time when the Holy Spirit is emphasizing the importance of personal relationships, one with another and with the Lord. And uh, I think it will be helpful for us to be considering these things in the time that we have together. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to be doing an exposition or a development of a familiar passage of Scripture there which has to do with that strange miracle of Jesus walking on the water and uh, not only Jesus but Peter. And I think it serves quite well to, uh, to uh, form the basis of the things we want to share this morning about our supernatural inheritance uh, as members of the family of God. I'm an ordained minister in the Disciples of Christ or Christian Church. 
And uh, for about 12 or 14 years, I pastored in my own denomination, first in uh, Washington, D.C., then in Toronto, Canada, and then in Pennsylvania. About 12 years ago, stepped out of the pastorate to go into a full-time writing and teaching ministry in the charismatic renewal. Uh, and I'm a product of my own Bible college and seminary. That is, I went to our denominational, one of our denominational schools out in, uh, our, from here it would be up in Enid, Oklahoma, Phillips University. And I had a rather difficult time up there in some ways because even by the time I went to Bible college and, and seminary, I was already interested in the things of prayer. In fact, when I was in seminary, by the time I was in, in seminary, I'd already received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And uh, our denomination, the denomination I was ordained in, uh, doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe in the charismatic renewal and the gifts of the Spirit. And so I was constantly getting in hot water by disagreeing with my professors. But one of the most surprising things that happened in one of my classes one time, I've never forgotten, was a statement my professor of sociology made uh, in the college. He was a Yale graduate and had been a Navy chaplain in World War II, and he was a fine man and a brilliant scholar, but he was really, uh, if not an atheist, at least he was, he was not what we would call the, the right kind of Christian. And I detected by things he was saying in his in this sociology class that he didn't have much understanding or belief either in the inspiration of the scriptures uh, or in the power of God or the power of prayer. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but one morning he made some statement that cast doubts on uh, the word of God or the promises of Jesus. And because uh, the seminary I attended was fairly liberal in some ways. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, Prof, I take it from what you're saying that you really don't believe that God hears and answers prayer. Uh, and he said, that's right. And I said, well, why don't you? And he said, he said this thing to me. He said, I don't believe that God answers prayer because nothing has ever happened in my life or in the life of any Christian that I know that would show me or indicate to me that God answers prayer. And as a young, enthusiastic, praying and believing Christian, I was really shocked. And I blurted out something like, well, it's a good thing you're teaching instead of preaching. Then. And then I realized after I left that it was probably worse that he was teaching because he was teaching young ministers and he was putting that kind of skepticism into them. But you know, although he was a liberal professor, he believes the same way or he unbelieves the same way that thousands and thousands and thousands of good evangelical Christians believe who believe the age of miracles has passed. They don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. They don't believe in the supernatural aspect of the work of God. They believe that those things happened back in New Testament time. That's what I was taught in seminary. You know, the age of miracles uh, died with the age of the apostles and the one they laid their hands on. The power was temporary, my professors used to say, in order to get the church started. Or some would say the, the power was there until we had the Bible. But after we had the Bible or after the church was started, then God took the power away. And so the people who believe that and the professors or teachers are put in that kind of position of saying, well, boy, things were really great back there in New Testament time, and things are really going to be great when we all get to heaven, but in between time, forget it. You know, you can't expect God really to do anything. So I came through that kind of teaching uh, in seminary and was always kind of a square peg in a round hole because I uh, always disagreed with my professors. In fact, God was ena enabled us, my wife and me, to, to start a little prayer meeting in our own home there on the college campus and God began to move and student ministers began to get filled with the Holy Spirit and we nearly got kicked out of school over it and all that sort of thing. All of those uh, incidents I tell in the first book I wrote, Face Up with a Miracle, which I think is back there on the book table. But anyway, I'm just saying all that to say that there are lots of Christians who believe in the natural aspect of the Christian life, but not the supernatural. Uh, 
Unfortunately, there are also lots of Christians, a lot of us charismatics and Pentecostal Christians who believe in the supernatural aspect who tend at times to neglect the natural or the development of character, the development of proper relationships to one another. We'll be talking about that in uh, the days ahead. But this morning I simply want to stress the fact that as the children of God, we are entitled to live in a realm where there is available to us all of those things that we read about in the New Testament and that those things are made available to us through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a relationship of faith. Uh, Brother Derek Prince, who is a dear, precious friend of many years, and I know he was here just a few months ago, Pastor, and Pastor, and I noticed some of his books out there on the book table, on your book rack, one of them which I helped him edit called Faith to Live By, which is one of the finest books on faith that I know anything about. And I've always appreciated Brother Derek's teaching on faith, but... Uh, here a few months ago, I was going through my mail at the New Wine Desk, and I got a letter from a fellow who was a well-known evangelical evangelist, a radio evangelist. You'd know his name if I were to mention it. And he was a man who didn't believe any of the kind of miracle-working power of God the way we did. In fact, he opposed it. Uh, didn't believe in the charismatic experience, but he was a man who developed a heart condition, and his health, his life was in danger. And even though he, he didn't claim he didn't believe in prayer, he and his wife began to pray earnestly that God would heal him and spare his life. And God really extended grace to him because one night in his sleep, he was healed. He woke up the next morning, his heart condition was gone. And so then he began to preach and teach some of the same things that we're teaching. And he sent me a little booklet uh, on faith, and it had a definition, which I want to pass on to you, which I think is one of the finest definitions of faith, which I've run into a long time. This brother defines faith this way. He says, faith is a positive, continuing attitude that something beautiful is going to happen to us even though nothing in our present circumstances indicates that things are going to get better. I'll say it again. Faith is a continuing, positive, continuing attitude that something beautiful is going to happen to us even though nothing in our present circumstances indicate that things are going to get better. Well, I want to talk about the power of God this morning as it relates to this scripture of, of uh, Peter of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. So let's begin to read that story. We find it in Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. And I think we'll just sort of, I could read it all the way through, but I think this morning we'll just sort of take it verse by verse, and I'll read a while and stop and make the comments that I want to make on various aspects of the Scripture. Uh, straightway Jesus is beginning with verse 22 in Matthew 14. Straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary, or the wind was against them. And on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Now, you know, that's a very dramatic picture that the Scriptures is presenting for us. So the Scriptures basically continually understates things in terms of, uh, of literary quality, with, with the exception of the, of the Psalms and some of the other uh, uh, books that are really like literature. But basically, the narrative of the scripture is sort of down to earth and factual and just sort of lays it out there without a lot of, of uh, dramatic descriptions. But this is indicating a very dramatic time. Here the disciples have launched out in the boat in the evening while Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And one of those quick storms comes up on the lake or the Sea of Galilee there and is really beating that little old boat. And there they are rowing against the wind, and they can't hardly uh, get very far away from the shore because of those waves breaking over the boat. 
So it's a very rough situation, even though the men in it are experienced, at least the fishermen, Peter and James and John and the others, those storms aren't new to them. But anyway, it's a stormy night and it's dark and they're having a rough time trying to row the boat and they're not in all the best of, of, of uh, mental framework anyway. And then suddenly the scriptures tells us that Jesus, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now the word spirit there is the word for phantasm or ghost or apparition. It's not the word pneuma that we talk about the Holy Spirit. It means that they thought this was an apparition or a ghost. And they were already disturbed by the storm and the raging waves. And here suddenly this strange apparition starts coming toward them across the water. And they can't recognize him at first. And so they're terrified. They cry out. Uh, it's interesting what that fact indicates to me about here. When they first saw the figure of Jesus coming across the water, they didn't recognize him. And thinking it was something frightening and something terrible, they cried out in terror or they cried out in fear. The thing it was, it was that God was on the way to their aid, but they didn't recognize the form he was coming in. And they're going to find out that what at first seemed terrifying, later turns out to be the very help that they need. But that ought to say something to us about the way we should face many of the circumstances that come to us. God comes to us in many kind of trying circumstances and in many unusual situations. And oftentimes we fail to recognize that God is in it. Uh, I don't like to be Pollyanna-ish in that sense, and I'm not, I, believe there's, I believe in having a basically positive attitude. I believe there are times when you ought to have a respectful fear for things, and I'm not one that doesn't uh, have a negative times. But I do think that basically the Christian, for the Christian, we need to see that there is something of God hidden in every kind of circumstance. This is what Romans, that old verse, Romans 8:28 talks about, that uh, all things work together for good. Or one of the modern versions puts it this way. We know that in everything God works to bring about good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So this is one of the first things we want to mention in the, the passage uh, about uh, releasing the power of God in our lives and about our inheritance in terms of, uh, of uh, the power of God is that there is something of God hidden in every circumstance that comes to us. All right, so they cry out for fear, but Jesus doesn't leave them in that fearful state for long. He says, verse 27 says, Straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So he speaks a word that will put them at peace, that it's not a spook, it's not a ghost, it's not an apparition that's coming, that it's really God. And then verse 28, uh, amazing verse to me. In fact, this whole story is an amazing story to me. Verse 28, Peter, who's the most impulsive of all the disciples, is always saying and doing impulsive things. Scripture says, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. Now, you know, this whole story is a rather strange incident. I should have said or could have said before I began it that for years when I was in the ministry, although I believed in prayer and the power of God, I never preached on this passage because it's a kind of a weird kind of a miracle when you get right down to it. It doesn't fit in the categories of other supernatural happenings in the New Testament or the miracles. The miracles in the New Testament, as we usually understand them, are supernatural interventions of God in behalf of people in order to meet some human need. 
Miracles of healing, God heals because he loves people and they show his compassion. He loves people and he heals the sick. Or in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the Lord took the five loaves and two fishes from the little boy and broke and multiplied them and fed 5,000 people, men besides women and children. And so we can say, well, that demonstrates God's compassion and concern to meet people's need. Casting out demons, God setting people free from the power of Satan, all of these kind of miracles indicate the love of God and the power of God, but they are all have to do with meeting some obvious, understandable human need. But this miracle doesn't fit in this category. Here Jesus comes walking across the top of the water. And not only that, when Peter found out that it was Jesus doing it, old Peter says, Lord, I want to do that too. What's a miracle like that doing in the New Testament? Anyway? It doesn't sound like the kind of miracle that demonstrates what God's like. Sounds more like a magician's trick. In fact, we see here Jesus doing the believe that God showed me something about it, which made me understand is in the category of the other miracles too. That it really does speak to a human need. And that is that when old Peter saw, got his fear dealt with and saw that it was really Jesus walking on the water and he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. What Peter was wanting to do, he was wanting to do the same thing Jesus was wanting to do. There was something in Peter that cried out. Peter was wanting to walk by a power beyond his own. He was seeking supernatural help. And that's the way God has made all of us. The old, uh, who was it? Old St. Augustine who said, Lord, our, uh, thou hast made us for thyself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in thee. Somebody said there's a kind of a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man that he knows that he can't make it without God. And I think God created us with that flaw that we know this is, I believe this is the reason why people uh, read horoscopes, why they get involved in the occult, why they carry rabbit's foot, or four-leaf clover, all these things. Everybody knows he needs an edge. That life is basically is so mean and so hard on us that we simply can't cope. Everybody's looking for some additional help in order to be able to cope. Well, God made us that way. He made us in such a way that we can't make it without him. What's more, we can't make it without his supernatural help. If for no other reason, because we have a supernatural enemy who is always out to take chunks out of us in one way or another. And it takes a supernatural God to help us resist a supernatural enemy. But when old Peter was crying out to the Lord, he said, Lord, if that's really you, bid me come to you on the water. What he was asking for was the supernatural ability to walk, the power to walk, a power beyond his own. Uh, the amazing thing was that Jesus told him he could do it. Another thing that Peter was, uh, that we need to remember about uh, what Peter said. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Uh, I think it's good that Peter put that uh, qualification in there. Lord, is that really you? In other words, Peter was checking out the source of his inspiration. He wanted to make sure that before he got involved in anything, he was getting involved with whatever was on the right side. His first feeling was that it was a spook or a demonic apparition anyway. And even after the Lord spoke to him and said, it's all right, it's me, the Lord, he, Peter wanted to check it out again. He said, Lord, if it's really you, bid me come. We need to take heed from what Peter did. Remember that before we initiate some radical or practically, for that matter, any action of faith, before we initiate anything in behalf of God or your shepherd or the man that you look to as a source of spiritual authority in your life. 
A pastor could help many of his people at times avoid making mistakes if before they do something presumptuous or do something radical in the way of something they believe God told them to do. Just check it out with the pastor and see. Uh, get the pastor's wisdom. He knows you. He knows the word. And he's able to counsel you and advise you in a way that, uh, that may well prevent you from getting into something uh, that you shouldn't get into. The problem is most people don't have the kind of relationship with their pastor that enables them to do that. Most people tend to come and announce to the pastor after they've already decided what they're going to do. They say, Pastor, the Lord told me to buy that new Cadillac, or the Lord told me to, you know, to invest in that oil well, or the Lord told me to do that. Well, why didn't you come before and say, Pastor, I think God is telling me to do thus and so. And check it with the pastor ahead of time. And the pastor who loves you and who has wisdom and insight and who prays for you regularly, he may have a perspective on the thing that will be altogether different from yours. We need to learn how to check out the source of our inspiration. And that doesn't mean a pastor ever takes the place of the Lord. But a pastor is responsibility is to help us interpret the will of God for our own lives. And I think of so many situations where good Christian people have gotten in deep trouble when if they had just bothered, just taken the time to to check it out with their pastor ahead of time, the wisdom that could have been theirs and it could have helped them from getting into a real difficulty. So old Peter, when he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Lord, if that's really you out there, then he said, I want to try what you're trying. Now, the next verse, 29, which I think in some ways is one of the most powerful in all the scriptures. He, that is Jesus, said, come. That's a powerful statement when you consider the uh, circumstances in which it's uttered. Here's Jesus doing this supernatural thing, walking on the water. And here's old impulsive Peter seeing that's what the Lord's doing. And in this impulse of his cries out saying, Lord, I want to do what you're doing. And uh, when you set that in the context of what we would often call a reasonable faith or a reasonable approach to our religion, to say the least, what Peter's asking for borders on fanaticism. You know, a real wild-eyed sort of enthusiastic kind of thing that most of the impulses within us want to stand against. We say, no, no, Peter, don't do anything wild and stupid like that. But there's, when we hear the Lord Jesus say, come, to me that's like an exclamation point on every other scripture that promises the power of God to help us. And when you consider all the things that the Lord has said, the scriptures about the power of prayer and what, uh, and what we can have if we will only pray and have faith, all of those, what one writer has called the whatsoever promises, whatsoever things you desire in prayer when you believe, believe that you receive it and you'll have it. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All of that tremendous inheritance that's available to us as the children of God because we have a God who loves us and who is, has opened up to us that whole supernatural realm of uh, his heavenly provision that is available to us through our faith, through our faith in him. And so when Jesus says to Peter, come, it's like an exclamation point for all of those other promises. You know, this is so untypical uh, the way we would respond in a situation like this. Why, for example, wouldn't Jesus say when Peter said, you know, Lord, can I do that? Why wouldn't Jesus say, no, 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 now, Peter. After all, I'm the son of God. You know, don't be ridiculous in, you know, in what you're asking. You notice that all through the scriptures and all through the gospels, there's never a time when you ever see Jesus saying to any one of the disciples, now, fellows, just calm down a little. Don't get too enthusiastic. Don't believe too much. After all, the Lord helps those who help themselves. There's a limit to what you ought to believe. There's none of that in the scriptures. 
In fact, just the opposite is true. Over and over and over again, the Lord is continually trying to encourage his disciples to believe for more. Remember the time when uh, Jesus went up to the fig tree, there weren't any figs in it, and he cursed the tree, and the next day they came by, and Peter noticed the tree had withered from the roots, and he marveled at it, and Jesus says, don't marvel at this. He said, I say to you, you can say, if you have faith, you can say, as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move and be cast in the sea, and if you don't doubt in your heart, it'll be done. He said, have faith in God. In fact, the literal translation of that scripture where he said, is have the faith of God. It's not something that you can just whump up by your emotions. But when you're moving in the stream of God's purpose and power and God's faith by grace begins to be born in your heart, then there's no limit to what God makes available to us. And that's what's promised and reemphasized when, when Jesus simply says to Peter, when he makes that wild, unusual request, Lord, can I do that? Jesus says, yeah, Peter, come on. So Jesus said, come. All right, Peter acted on the word. Jesus had come, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I like the rest of that verse, too. Uh, I'd like sometime to see somebody paint a picture of Peter while he was still on top of the water. The only pictures I've ever seen of the paintings I've seen is miracles show Peter when he's starting to sink, when he's already in problems. But you know, he had it made there for a while. When he started out, he did all right. Scripture says that he, that he did it. He got away with it. He, walked, he stepped out of the boat and began to walk on the water, and... Uh, uh, it worked. He was out there on the water walking toward Jesus. And he was proving the promise uh, of God. But there's something here even that we can learn about. The scripture says when Peter got out of the boat, he said he got down out of the boat, came, he's come down out of the ship, he walked on the water. Uh, so, you know, what that indicates to me is that Peter was faithful enough and bold enough uh, to act on what God had promised. When the Lord said, come, you know, God tells us lots of times, encourages us, nudges us by his Holy Spirit to do certain things that require an act of faith on our part. And so often we fall short at this point. We won't act in obedience or we'll say, uh, we, we want to hedge it about by security. Suppose old Peter had said, when the Lord said, come, suppose Peter had just folded his arms and say, okay, Lord, you float me out across the waves and, and uh, we'll show the world a miracle. Well, he'd still be in the boat tonight this morning. What was required for him to do what, to have the miracle that Jesus had was that he had to put feet under his faith. He had to get out of the boat and start to walk. In fact, he had to walk in the boat, first of all. He had to do something that was perfectly, completely natural. He took a few steps in the boat, and then he got out of the boat and walked on the water. And you know, that must have taken faith. That took a certain amount of courage. Well, I know Peter got in lots of trouble lots of times. In fact, he gets in trouble in this incident. He's just about to get into it. Now, but at least his heart was right and he wanted to realize all that God had in store for him. Now, he, he had a nasty temper. He rebuked the Lord and he denied the Lord and here his faith faltered and so forth. But I, I appreciate Peter because he was so human. Uh, and uh, God never gave up on him. The Lord never gave up on him, even though he had all of these problems. And I appreciate him here because he had the guts, he had the faith to step out, put feet under his faith and begin to act in the way uh, that God would have him act in order to get this miracle. And so he stepped out of the boat and began to walk. Uh, you know, it takes a human response oftentimes to get from God uh, what we're seeking for. There is a, this has to do with the title I gave this message on the Christian life, natural and supernatural. Even miracles are a combination of the natural and supernatural. Uh, 
And uh, there are often many things required of us. Nearly every time there will be something required in us in a way of a human act or a human response in order to release the power of God. Now, not always, but many times that's the case. And when you check out the miracles in Scripture, you'll find out that many times they're triggered by some act of faith. Now, we know God can heal without any human help at all. Why is it then that he has us anoint with oil and pray in the name of Jesus? We know God can heal and has healed long distance in mass and all the rest. But why then are we taught at times to lay on hands, lay the laying on of hands, and that it's lay hands on the sick and they'll recover? Or to anoint with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick. If God's going to do it, why does he have to have us anoint with oil? There's no virtue in the oil. Why does he have us lay on hands? He doesn't need human hands to heal. But there's something about the human response, something about the human activity that apparently releases something in us that enables God then to do what he wants to do, which he wouldn't be able to do without it. You remember the story of the lady who had the hemorrhage of blood about, what is it, 18 years, and she was all weak and anemic and been seeking help from the doctors and they couldn't help her. And here she is leaning up on the side of a building one day, and here comes Jesus walking by, crowded around with all of his disciples. And the scripture says about this lady, said she purposed in her heart, said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. And so somehow, even in her weakened condition, she makes the effort and presses through the crowd and manages to reach through and perhaps just with one finger or two fingers, manages to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. It means she must have been kneeling down, hunkered down like this and working her way through the crowd to work and she can just touch the hem of that garment right down close to the ground. And immediately Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the, and the disciples, they, they chided me. They said, Lord, what do you mean? You're crowded around. You're elbowing against all kinds of people. What do you mean who touched me? Who touched him? Jesus said, no. He said, but I perceive that virtue, there's just been a special touch. I perceive that virtue has gone out from me. This, was some, this little lady got her miracle with no, no uh, uh, knowing participation on the part of the Lord at all. One of the... Old one of the old translations of Scripture translate this way. said that Jesus, when he says that, I perceive that virtue went forth from me. One translator puts it this way. has the Lord saying, I perceive that someone has made a demand on my ability. Well, I notice there wasn't any virtue in his robe. There was no magic in the robe Jesus wore. But here this little lady reached out and touched the hem of his garment by faith. And Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And then they had to search around and they found this little woman and she admitted that she's the one that did it. And Jesus said, go thy way, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. It wasn't just her faith, it was the human action where she reached through that crowd and finally touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Know this too, that among all those people that were elbowing around with the Lord, she was not the only one who had problems. There were other needy people bumping up against Jesus. But she's the one that reached out in faith. She's the one that expected something to happen. But it took that human act. Suppose in her weakened condition, she just stayed leaning up against the wall and said, Oh, I'm so weak. I've been had this hemorrhage for all these years. No strength. None of the doctors able to help me. Oh, there's that Jesus fellow. Look at that crowd around him. He's the fellow that heals people. They say he heals all kinds of people. There he goes. Wish he'd come over and heal me. But there he goes. She'd never been healed. It took a human act of faith and response in order to get the thing done. Just like old Peter. What did Peter have to do to get his miracle? He had to get out of the boat and walk. Wasn't any miracle in that little woman reaching through the crowd and touching Jesus' garment. But it did the thing that closed the circuit with God's power and the blessing came. 
Wasn't any miracle in Peter's walking on the water either. Peter walked on the water just exactly the way he would have walked if the boat had been pulled up on the shore and he got out and walked on the sand. It was a perfectly natural act that Peter did. Wasn't one ounce of miracle in his walking. God didn't pump his legs up and down. God didn't defy the law of gravity for him, this sort of thing, you know. Hold him up. Peter's act was simply a natural act. What happened was that God met him with every step he took. And every time Peter's foot reached the water, God was there to sustain it. And it was a combination of Peter's walking and God holding him up that gave the miracle. So many times we, we speculate, we want to test God. And so for suppose Peter had walked over the side of the boat and looked over the side and put one over, foot over and tapped the surface of the water with his foot. You suppose it would have been firm under his feet? Only one way for him to prove the water would hold him up or that God would meet him. That was that he had to get over and step over the side and walk. Step over not just with one foot but with both feet and then turn loose the side of the boat and then start walking. And it worked for a little while. As I say, I would love to see a painting of Peter doing it when it worked. But incidentally, it didn't really fail. The scripture just says that, that uh, when he saw the wind, boy, he was afraid and beginning to sink. It didn't say he sank. It just said he began to sink. So when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. Well, there's a real lesson to be learned in that verse, too. What happened to Peter was that he began to question what he was doing after he got started. And the devil began to test him. What happened was, the scripture says, when he saw the wind boisterous, you don't really see the wind. What you see is the effects of the wind. And he saw the waves whipping up. And he began to rationalize. He began to think how impossible it was for him to be doing what he was doing. He took his eyes off of Jesus, put his eyes on his circumstances. And when you do that, you know, that's when you begin to have problems. That's like our definition of faith, that something beautiful is going to happen even when there's nothing in our present circumstances that indicates things are going to get better. Or when Peter took his eyes off the Lord and put his eyes on his circumstances, he saw how impossible it was for anybody to do what he was doing. for the Lord, uh, there's nearly always some obstacle or a time something suddenly seems to get worse before it gets better. You can just count on it. God allows the devil to resist us with every step of faith. And that's understandable because if it was too easy, we wouldn't hang on to it and we wouldn't appreciate it anyway. If we never had any kind of opposition, the devil's a thief and God allow him to try to steal anything that God is doing for us. So every step of faith we take is going to be tested. This is what happened to Peter. Uh, he took his eyes off his source, looked at his circumstances, and he began to sink. Uh, now, here he's faced with a, a choice that lots of times we're faced with. Here you've made a profession of faith. You're going to believe God. You're going to trust God for something. You're starting some new venture or you're, uh, some new aspect of your ministry or your witness or testimony and so forth, and suddenly things get tough. Uh, and you're in an embarrassing situation. Uh, either people don't believe or... You don't have the money to go on with what you're doing. Anyway, you're suddenly in a place where 
you really begin to doubt and question all that's happening and people begin to criticize. Then you're faced with two alternatives. One is to retreat back and handle it in a human point of, from a human point of view. Send out an emergency appeal for money. I, I really don't mean to be <laughs> critical when I say that because I'm not trying to be criticized the way anybody raises money. But Or you can resort to some other human answer. In Peter's case, he had a choice. He could either cry out to God for more help or he could resort to a human answer and turn around and swim back to the boat. Well, thank God, at least I'm grateful, that he chose not to take the human way out, not to take the faithless way out. You see, when he began to doubt God's ability to hold him up and he began to sink, while he, he wasn't walking supernaturally anymore, his doubts didn't affect his natural ability. He could still swim. Doubt never affects your natural ability, really. Doubt only, only creates problems with your supernatural aspect of your Christian life. Doubt's what short-circuits the supernatural flow of God's power into your life. And most of us as Christians, we vacillate between the two. Occasionally, by faith, we rise and move some mountain or we have some victory, but a lot of the time, we're not able to exercise that kind of faith or we don't, and so we rely mostly on our human resources. And there are loads of Christians in the body of Christ today who are swimming when they ought to be walking on the water, you see. Well, I'm grateful in this case that Peter chose not the natural way out, but hung on to the supernatural. And when he was beginning to sink, it says he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Then I like the next verse too. Scripture says, immediately, straightway, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. Jesus didn't dilly-dally around, didn't wait, except he waited until Peter asked. Notice that Peter started to sink, but Jesus didn't make a move to him. Jesus let him make that choice. Would he ask the Lord for help, or would he swim back to the boat? Lots of times God leaves us in that box, and the choice is ours. Are we going to hold out for the Lord? and walk it on through by faith or are we going to give up our faith and find some lesser human way out i don't mean that there would be any condemnation in that but lots of times we just don't hold on long enough in order to get the answer so jesus stands there on the water watching peter start to sink waiting for peter to make his decision will he cry to the lord or will he swim for the boat so he cries to the Lord, and then the scripture says, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. The Lord's arm is always long enough, but you have to ask. And Jesus didn't make a move until Peter asked. Well, what are you going to do when the test comes? Uh, I remember when we left the pastor 12 years ago, and really felt the Lord wanted us to do that. And I don't, certainly don't have anything against the pastor. I'm grateful for every man who pastors a church. I was never real happy in the pastor. Not that uh, I wasn't a fairly able preacher or could do a modest, was modestly successful in the things that I did, but I never really felt at home in the pastor. And I always sort of sensed that I wouldn't always be there. And the time finally came through a set of circumstances, partly through the writing of my first book and doors beginning to open through that, uh, I really begin to sense that God wanted us to take this step of faith, to leave the security of the pastorate and to step out and just begin to minister where the Lord would lead and trust God to provide for our needs. In other words, that was the time specifically when we decided to get out of the boat. 
Now, I was pastoring in Pennsylvania at the time and, and uh, didn't have all that large a salary, but what we had was kept us going and I had a parsonage and a car allowance and months paid vacation and pension plan and all of the kind of, uh, you know, material blessings that go with a pastor. Although the salary was modest and we were with our large family, I had a, my wife and five children and we were, you know, couldn't hardly make one end meet, let alone both ends meet. But uh, So there was some economic pressure on us, but still I was faced with, did God really want me to leave that security and to take this step of faith and uh, step out and minister and just believe that God would provide. And God gave us the grace and the courage to do it because I, no question in my mind now that it was the will of God. Uh, but we, and we moved down to Florida and uh, began a faith ministry. Somebody's described a living by faith as living in the midst of a miracle on the edge of disaster, which is what it is. When it's just, somebody else has said it's, when you're living by faith, you live by only invisible means of support and no visible means of support. And it wasn't many weeks after we moved to Florida that, boy, you know, things just fell apart. I mean, the few little speaking engagements that I had, I finished, and our little meager resources ran out. And one morning I woke up, and we were broke, you know, and with a wife and five children to support, and no, uh, no uh, immediate speaking engagements and this sort of thing. I'll tell you one thing. When you get down to rock bottom, it'll put backbone into your praying. Uh, and we went through some amazing experiences. Some of these I relate in my book, Deliver Us From Evil. But uh, God put us in a school of faith, kept us there a couple of years, where at times we literally prayed the food in on the table. In fact, I was prepared when we took the step of faith to do that. But it's one thing to say you're prepared to do it, and it's another thing when you get right down to it. But time and time again, God met us, sometimes not as quick as we wanted. But we never missed a meal, although my wife put on a few funny menus a few times. But our kids never went without. We were never had a utility cut off or unpayment I. I uh, found out that God wasn't too upset with a second notice for a utility bill. In fact, I found out they come in different colored envelopes when they send you the second one. <laughs> I see some of you have gotten those different colored envelopes yourself. But anyway, there were times when we felt like, you know, if, it, if, God, uh, if God doesn't come through, you go under. That's what it is to walk by faith. And God never let us down. In fact, after a few years, when God really began to bless and when God began to give it back, as the scripture said, given it'll be given unto you, well shaken, pressed down, you know, running over and so forth. Uh, when God really began to prosper us in the ministry, I wondered what had gone wrong. I mean, I, I didn't, I'd learned how to handle poverty by faith. I didn't know how to handle prosperity. And I had to rethink my theology to realize that it's God's intention uh, to prosper his servants, you know. But it, we had to come through that time of faith. There had to come a time when we stepped out of the boat. Now, God doesn't re expect or require everybody to do what we did. I don't mean every pastor ought to leave his church. But I know now my calling wasn't to be as a pastor. It was to be a, as a teacher and as a writer and as an editor, as an author. And I know I'm in God's calling. Now, I still have pastoral responsibilities. I still, I'm an elder and a pastor in our church in, uh, in Mobile. But I know that I'm in the center of God's will for my life, but I had to take a step of faith to get there. It just didn't automatically come forth. And... Uh, so I'm in a position where I always encourage people when they're in a situation where Peter was and they really feel God wants them to step out of the boat. Go ahead and try it. Because I don't believe God will let anybody down. And he didn't let Peter down. All right, so uh, I like Jesus' response. Notice Jesus didn't say to Peter, so immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, verse 31, caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He didn't say there, you know, Peter, that's a dumb thing to do, Peter. 
Don't you know only the Son of God could do that? Don't you realize, Peter, that you got fanatical in your faith and you reached out there and attempted something that was just stupid? Not, not one word of chastisement about Peter's attempt to do the impossible. The word of chastisement came because Peter stopped believing. What he said was, Peter, you had it going for you. You had your miracle until you began to doubt. Your problem isn't, Peter, that you tried something you should never have tried. The problem was you didn't hang in there when it got tough. You didn't go on believing. Why did you doubt? Your problem wasn't too much faith. Your problem, Peter, was too little faith. Simply reinforces the point we made earlier about Jesus when he said, Come, the Lord gets excited when we get excited enough to try things by faith. There's no, again, I'll say it, there's no place in Scripture where Jesus tried to tone his disciples' faith down. Every place he tried to encourage them. It's interesting, even after his resurrection, and he appears to the disciples behind closed doors, in Mark it says that he, because they didn't believe that he was raised from the dead. They didn't believe it when Mary told them. They didn't believe it when the other disciples who'd seen him told them. And he appears behind closed doors to them, and it says he upbraided them for their unbelief. Even after all of the years that he was with them, even after he died and resurrected from the dead, and he appears back in their midst, he's still trying to teach them to have faith. Their problem has always been. Sometimes, you know, I, I understand this can be a problem with presumption, and I have some problems at times with some of the faith teachers who push things too far to extremes. I'm not so sure as so much as the teachers as, as their imitators that do it. I know as a Bible teacher, uh, fellows that I'm related with, we get criticized lots of times for things that, people that we've taught do that go beyond where we taught them and we get the blame for it. I think that's true probably of the faith teachers, some of them. But anyway, I know from a scriptural standpoint, the problem never was in the scripture that men had too much faith. The problem always was that they didn't have faith enough. So I'm going to go on periodically teaching in this vein as long as that's what the problem is. Now, if we ever reach the stage, if I ever reach the stage where too many people are beginning to trust too much in the promises, then I'll alter what I'm saying right now. And it does need to be balanced by the other teaching that we're going to be doing this week. But this morning, this session, we're talking about our supernatural inheritance as Christians, that we have a natural inheritance, we have a supernatural inheritance. And the Christian life is to be a combination of both. And a major portion of the body of Christ through the years has been denied its supernatural portion. New Testament Christianity was miracle-working Christianity. Anything less than that is not acceptable to the Lord. And uh, certainly it's not acceptable to me either. I'm grateful to God to be moving in a stream of things in the Christian life where we know the ministries and the gifts and the provisions of God are real and are available to us. Okay, so Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for having too much faith, only for having too little faith. Then it says, uh, what happened was Jesus pulled him back up to the top of the water and together they turned and walked together back to the boat. When they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Verse 33 says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. So, old Peter, arm in arm with the Lord, turns around and they both walk back to the boat, climb in, storm stops. And the other 11 characters in the boat suddenly began to rejoice and praise God. Well, now that's good that they began to rejoice and praise God that they'd seen the miracle and that the storm had finally stopped. But uh, which would you rather have been when this story was all over and done with? 
Which testimony would you rather have? The testimony of the eleven who stayed in the boat or the testimony of Peter who got out there and got wet in the process, nearly went under, but got his miracle anyway and came back with the Lord? First time I taught on this theme years ago, I titled a message, A Miracle by the Skin of Your Teeth is Better Than No Miracle at All. <laughs> and I think it's still true. I admire Peter. I know he ended up with egg on his face more than once. But this time he got it. And the, the thing that I really appreciate is that as all through the years after that, you know, and I, and I don't want to be critis, critis, critical of the guys that stayed in the boat. I think any other one of them had said what Peter said, the Lord would have told him to get out too. Peter happened to be the only one that was impetuous enough to say that. But the Lord would have said the same thing for any one of the others. So he went through all of that stress and that strain, the embarrassment of starting to sink, about to fail in front of his friends, and all the rest, but when all of the tests were over and all of the embarrassment was gone, there he was back arm in arm with the Lord on the top of the water and he got his miracle. And they came back in the boat, the storm stopped. And in all the years that followed, when anybody would remember this experience, Peter and the other disciples, Peter's the one that had the testimony. Peter's the one that said, I tried it, it nearly didn't work, but it did. You know, I nearly went under, but I didn't, you know. So I, I want to encourage you this morning not to be rambunctious or to be presumptuous, but just to realize that when the time comes that you really feel by the impetus of God's Holy Spirit, God is asking or looking for or encouraging you to take some step of faith. Think of the reasons why it'll work rather than the reasons why it won't work. And be willing to exercise faith. The worst thing that'll happen to you is you get wet, you know, when you get out of the boat. Uh, but so many things the people of God have missed because when the chips were down and when the time came really to take the step of faith, they decided to stay in the boat. Uh, years ago, when I was first uh, out of the pastorate and was traveling a lot, I was over in England and I was uh, uh, in ministry with an uh, English friend of mine, the people who first published Face Up with a Miracle in England. And, uh, a fellow named Noel Doubleday, and Noel was a friend of Brother Andrew, God's smuggler. Any of you read the story of Andrew smuggled Bibles? In fact, Noel and I and some friends, we went on one of those trips one time into Yugoslavia and on into Hungary smuggling Bibles, but that's another story. But anyway, one night, uh, Brother Andrew and I were on the same program together in a, in a uh, church there in London, and uh, Andrew made a, a comment that I've never forgotten because he was, he was speaking on this scripture. And uh, he was talking about this boat that the disciples were in. Represent, he said that boat represents what the world calls security. You know, the disciples were safe in that boat. The boat had been fashioned to weather storms and so forth. And as, all, as long as the disciples were in the boat, they were secure. But Andrew simply made the statement talking about the, you know, and that was a decade ago, but talking about the increasing problems at the end of the age and how things that we've held dear are going to collapse and so forth. And he simply made the statement that time's going to come when that boat's liable to capsize. In other words, the time, the scriptures say this, the time will come when the arm of the flesh is going to fail. Which prompted me in times after that to add the other thing is that if the boat capsizes, that the time is going to come. If that boat does represent all that we've held dear in terms of life as we've known it in terms of security, homes and houses and jobs and, and uh, savings and money and all the rest. And if all of that goes as well it might in 10 or 20 years uh, or even less, 
Suppose everything that we held dear in terms of human security is snatched from us. I don't mean necessarily by a holocaust or by war, but just by an economic collapse, which more and more pundits are saying is going to happen. Uh, what do we do? Well, uh, if the time comes when the boat capsizes, then the only real safe place is going to be out there walking on the water with Jesus. And if that's where our security is, rather than in the boat, so this is why I like to encourage people to take those adventures in faith, not be afraid. I can testify to it in our own experience. I look back on what happened 12 years ago. I'm not sure if I were to have to do it tomorrow if I could repeat what God led us to do then. But God gives you the faith to do it at the time you're to do it. And if you'll act on it, it will work, even though there will be the tests and even though there will be the partial failures and even though there will be the closed doors, there will be other doors that open. There isn't any real substitute in the Christian life for walking by faith. But if you don't somehow begin to learn to do it now, you're not going to be able to do it all at once when you have to do it. I've often said that if you knew someday you were going to have to swim the English Channel, but this morning you don't have the ability to dog paddle across the swimming pool in your neighbor's backyard, what chance are you going to have against the channel? The time to learn to swim is now. The time to learn to live by faith is now to begin to trust God more and more in little ways and in bigger ways, believing that he wants us to step out in faith and believe and trust him and to prove him in order that when the big tests come, then we'll be victorious in those as well as in the small. So, just in closing, let me say that the Christian life, according to my understanding of the New Testament, was meant to be a combination of the natural and the supernatural. And the way the supernatural power of God gets released in our lives is when, by in response to the faith we have in God and to the leading of His Holy Spirit, He asks us to, leads us to step out into something that we could not accomplish on our own. And when we do that, then we prove that the Lord is as good as His Word. Amen? Amen. Thank you for your patience this morning. You want to close it? We just want to be dismissed? Okay. Okay. Let's just stand and worship the Lord a minute, and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Lord, and thank you for having us together this morning. Thank you for the promises in your word, Lord. Ask you, Lord, to bless your people now as we dismiss, prepare for lunch, and for the session tonight. Lord, have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.